Well, tonight's our final study here in 1 Corinthians. So if you turn to 1 Corinthians 16, uh, and we'll pick up uh, the end of the story here in 1 Corinthians. We'll begin in verse 15, uh, excuse me, in verse 5, and, and we'll finish up with verse 24, the final verse. Now, as you might expect, with almost all letters, there's usually a conclusion. Conclusions are often summaries. Summaries are usually the high points of what's previously been said, and that is true uh, about what the Apostle Paul now writes here at the the end of the book of 1 Corinthians. Bear in mind that when you read 1 Corinthians, and as we will move on to 2 Corinthians, these two letters were actually written at different times. They are not written directly in response to one another, um, but rather the first letter expresses these problems that were in the church in Corinth, The second letter is going to be kind of a follow-up from a very different perspective. But the Apostle Paul really is kind of now going to remind us that all of this doctrine that he's laid out does us no good if we don't live out that doctrine, if we don't make it our duty to do the things that the Lord's called us to do. And so as we pick up here in in verse 5, he's going to say he's going to come through Macedonia speaking of his next trip. That next trip will actually be also mentioned as we be in 2 Corinthians. But Paul's going to kind of give us a manifesto, if you will, uh, a little bit of what it's like to live in the last days. And as I was looking at the news today and kind of reading through some of the highlights, you know, here's this failed attempt to negotiate uh, with North Korea. We have all kinds of things going on in Israel right now that have prophetic implication. We, we have a world that seems to be in many places coming apart at the seams. We have very little true peace. We're one of the very rare places on the earth where, generally speaking, people live in peace. We're in the last days, family. I, I don't know exactly when the Lord's going to return, but I do know he's closer than he's ever been. I do know that tonight could be the time when we hear that trumpet sound. Amen? I believe that with all my heart that the Lord could return at any moment for his church, rapture us out. And in time of unparalleled trouble as the Lord pours out his wrath on, on the unbelieving world that's rejected him, that could happen. And so the Apostle Paul is going to give us a little bit of an instruction on how we ought to be living in the last days here in the final section. So would you pray with me? We'll pick up in verse 5. And finish up the first letter to the church at Corinth. Father, we adore you. And we thank you for your word. Lord, that you took the time to instruct us to have the Apostle Paul speak these words. They were written down by a scribe and he finally signs them with his own hand. Pray that you would now take your word and impart it to us. Lord, we receive it as truth. Would we receive it with gladness? Would we act on it, God? And so we give you this time. Speak to us as your children, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 5, 1 Corinthians 16. And now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, um, for I am passing through Macedonia. Notice the italics or the bracketed statement there. He's planning on traveling through Macedonia. Now bear in mind he's writing this from Ephesus. Ephesus is in the coastal region of modern-day Turkey, north of Syria, and so he's writing from one of the seven churches. 
the churches of Asia Minor. The short path would be get on a boat and travel directly across the Aegean Sea to Corinth. It's much shorter, but he's going to take the land route. He would go across the Bosphorus, which separates the Black Sea from the Aegean Sea, and he would there be in the region of Macedonia. And so he's going to take that trip. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter there with you that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. And so he begins by, by writing this letter. He spent three years in Ephesus. He, he's now concluding this letter. And, and what he's really doing is he's, he's speaking into the hearts of these people that he's now corrected. He's, he's spoken to all these issues of doctrine. If you remember many of the things that we've seen here in this book, I mean, they had problems that are pretty massive, amen? They had people living in sin in the church and sexual sin, and the church was accepting it. They couldn't even define what sin was, so Paul defines sin for them in chapter 6. He, he speaks into their life about how they ought to be doctrinally understanding what the real gospel is. They didn't quite get that. So he's speaking to this church that he's highly invested in, and he loves and so as he does this, he, he's saying, look, I don't want this to be a passing thing. I want to spend some time with you. I know you're waiting for my visit. I'm waiting to spend time with you. But he's going to remind them to stand firm. He says, look, I, I, I've told you what you need to know. I, I understand that there were some problems. I'm glad to hear that some of those problems, in essence, are, are being taken care of. But he's going to finally instruct them in the thing that's most important, the thing that he spent all of chapter 13 talking about, and that's all this truth needs to be spoken in love and put to practice in love, lived out in a way that it's attractive to people. You know, so very often we can know the truth, and I will tell you, and most of you would testify, if you're here and you're a parent and you have children, uh, sometimes it's actually easier to get worked up about what they're doing wrong when they're actually doing something wrong and you can just let them have it. Because your emotions get involved in it, right? You get worked up about the problem. It's like, yeah, it's like, okay, now I'll talk to them about it. Can I tell you that is a bad model for parenting and it is a bad model for sharing the love of Jesus with people about the things they need to change. You don't want to wait until you get worked up about some sin issue in somebody's life before you take time to lovingly talk to them and correct them. You want to look at that situation while it's still a minor situation, and that's what the Apostle Paul's doing. He said, look, you're going down the wrong road, and you need to repent. You need to turn around. You need to go the other way. And now he's reminding them, do these things in love. And so as we await the rapture of the church, as you and I tonight could be home with Jesus in the twinkling of an eye, how are we living our lives? What are we doing to put our faith into practice? You see, because the truth is, you can either see obstacles as obstacles, or you can see obstacles as opportunity. Notice how the Apostle Paul approaches this. For I do not wish, verse 7 reminds us, to see you now on the way. I hope to stay a while with you, if the Lord permits. 
Now, why would he say that if he just said, look, I'm coming through Macedonia. I want to see you. Because Paul realizes a very central truth that he talked about when he wrote to the church at Ephesus, and that is we have a real enemy. And any time you decide that you're going to go God's direction, you can pretty much count on the enemy deciding to do something to thwart you. Every time you seize an opportunity, you are also going to find obstacles. Sometimes those obstacles are put there by God to help you grow, and sometimes those obstacles are put there by the enemy to discourage you, to knock you off the path. And so it's not if you're going to have obstacles, it's what are you going to do when the obstacles come, because they're going to come. Ministry, if I can tell you anything about ministry in a general sense, it's messy. It's messy. It's not perfect. And let me tell you why. People. We're ministering to people. We're not ministering to buildings or pews or carpet. We're ministering to people. Fallen mankind, all of us. Each one of us still with the capacity to sin. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Cleansed and washed. But we still make mistakes. And the enemy knows how to take people who are in various degrees uh, of growth and plop them right in front of the path that God's asked you to travel. And you're going to find out in your ministry experience, and every one of you is in ministry, by the way, because you're redeemed, you have a part in God's plan, at least in sharing the gospel, you can count on there being someone put in your way to keep you from doing exactly that. Maybe something put in your way. Maybe it's going to be the, the, the distance that you have to travel. Paul knew if he just simply went across the ocean, it would just be a passing blow. He'd go to Corinth, deal with the thing, and he's going to move on. So he's actually going the hard way. I think people who really want to go far in ministry are willing to go the hard way. People who want to go far in ministry are willing to go the hard way. Because the easy way, everybody wants to travel. You know, it's amazing to me how many times when I, you know, talk to especially young pastors about pastoral ministry... You know, they're looking for their first pastoral assignment. They're looking for the first time they get to be called senior pastor or teaching pastor or lead pastor. They're looking to go to the head of the class when they need to be looking to go to the bottom of the toilet bowl. Because there at the bottom of that toilet bowl is where you're going to learn how to serve people. That's where you're going to actually learn what it really means to serve. Very often we look for shortcuts, and there are no shortcuts. The long way is almost always the best way. Because it's there you learn along that path all the lessons that God has for you. And those opportunities that he puts, you have to do the hard work. I was listening yesterday to an interview with LeBron James LeBron did not get the way he is playing basketball by sitting around watching videos on YouTube. He got that way by practicing the sport of basketball 8, 10, 12 hours a day for most of his entire life. 
He started at eight years old. And so for the last 20 plus years, he's been draining those threes from beyond the ark, blindfolded. And the same is true in your life and living before the Lord. If you are unwilling to put in the work, if you are unwilling to take the effort, if you are looking for the shortcut, you will never go far in ministry. Paul understood that. He was that classic, you know, line we used to hear from our parents back in the 60s, those that grew up during the Depression. Uh, My parents uh, grew up right at the time of the Depression. Uh, And so they went through World War II and the Korean War. And the most common thing, oh, you kids have it so good. When I used to go to school, we used to have to walk 10 miles and it was uphill both ways, there and back, you know, it was just, you know, sometimes ministry is uphill both ways. Sometimes it's knee deep in snow. And I'm speaking metaphorically, it can be hard, it can be arduous, it it can be some tough trudging. But every obstacle becomes an opportunity when you see it God's way. Maybe it's just an opportunity for you to grow, to trust God in a greater way. Paul's practicing this approach. He's living it. He says, but I will tarry in verse 8 and 9 in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a great and effective door is open to me. And check this out, there are many adversaries. The moment the great and the effective door opens, that's normally when you actually can see the adversaries. Because the enemy knows once you see the open door, you're going to do something to go through it. So when do you think he's going to turn up the heat? I I can't tell you how many times people are going to be, well, I signed up for a missions trip. My car blew up, my house burned down, my dog died. I'm not speaking prophetically if you sign up to go on a missions trip, but you're going to find out whenever you step through a great and effective door that the adversary is waiting for you on the other side of the door. So I go, oh no, you're not going. It's not going to be easy for you. That's because God's at work. And if God's at work, the enemy's going to be at work. You can count on it. Now, I want you to notice as Paul's writing, he says he's going to stay till Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost is a unique feast because there are seven major feasts that the Jewish people celebrated. The Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, was one of the required feasts that if you were an able-bodied Jewish man, you were supposed to celebrate it in Jerusalem. So the Apostle Paul is actually saying, as a good Jewish man, I've got this collection that we saw last time that was taken up for the church in Jerusalem. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to spend Pentecost in Jerusalem and then I'm going to come to you. Paul did not forsake one thing to do another thing. He did what was right all the time. Even if it meant he went a further journey because now he's going to go from Ephesus in the middle of modern day Turkey down to Israel almost two-thirds, three-quarters of the way to Egypt just so that he can be faithful so that his people would see him as a witness before the Lord. And he's going for a very specific reason because during the Feast of Pentecost, 
It was the only feast that was celebrated with leavened bread. You have three feasts on one side of Pentecost and three feasts on the other side of Pentecost. And in the middle is that feast where the harvest of the leavened ones, those with sin, we who are the believers, it's a picture of the church. You have the first coming of the Lord, you have the first fruits of the Lord, and you have the final fruits of the harvest. And so he's saying, I want to seize an opportunity, I believe, to speak to his Jewish brothers and sisters. This is going to be perfect for him. He's going to take a little hiatus. He's going to use every opportunity that God gives him to its fullest. I love how Paul does this. Because so very often when we look at ministry, we get very narrow of focus. And we forget about the other things we have going on. You know, I'm all excited about the ladies leaving for the, the ladies retreat tomorrow. But can I tell you, that's not the only thing that's going on in the church. As big as that is, it's a huge event. There's a lot of time and effort. Wonderful. It's going to be amazing. But there's still backyards missions trips, and there's still some training for the high school missions trip that's going down to Columbia. There's still all kinds of other things going on. You see, we could all just pack up everything. Well, let's just all go help the ladies. Well, God didn't call us to do that. God called us to stay on station, to keep doing what he's put in front of us. We all have our Timothys. We all have our Tituses. Notice verse 10. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be, without, be with you without fear. For he does the work of the Lord as I also do. And therefore let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren." And so Paul says, look, we've got other things to do. And there are other people that are going to do it. And he highlights Timothy. At this time in Timothy's life, it's largely believed he was someplace between 30 and 40. But a Jewish man was considered a young man until he was 40 years old. So he's less than 40, definitely more than 25 or so. So he's probably between 30 and 40 years old. He was not considered wise. He couldn't have been an elder to Jewish people. And so Paul says, look, here's this young guy that's poured his life into ministry, and I want you to respect him. And I want to take a moment for some of us who are a little older in the room to remind us to speak into our lives as older senior saints people who've been around for a long time, who've had the opportunity to walk the church through many different valleys and over some mountaintops, that there comes a time in every church's existence that it better recognize it's time to turn some of the things over to the Timothys. Because if we do not, then the ministry suffers. Because they have the zeal and we have the wisdom. And those two things are needed together. But if we don't help them with the wisdom and help them grow and get out of the way and let them make some mistakes, if we don't support them, notice what the Apostle Paul's doing. You treat him like you would treat me. Now, does Timothy know everything Paul knows? Absolutely not. Paul was schooled under Gamaliel. 
He went to the highest level of Jewish learning. He was what we would call a Juris Doctorate. He was on the Sanhedrin. He was a member of the Jewish religious court. He was a very learned man. And here you have a young man about whose qualifications we actually don't know all that much. But Paul poured into this young guy. And so Paul's basically saying, look, I I want you to help him grow. Love on him. Respect him. Bless him. Encourage him. Strengthen him. Because there's going to be one day when he's going to be running the church, not me. There's a lesson here. I've watched a number of churches gray out. I've watched the older people take the church all the way to its highest heights and then fly the plane basically right into the ground. And I mean this very seriously. Churches that once had attendance and work all over the world become absolutely nothing but an empty shell with a bunch of grumpy old people sitting in it. I'm not speaking to anybody in the room. I'm speaking to all of us. There comes a time when we're on our sunset cruise, okay? And we need to recognize that and be pouring into the Timothys. Because if we don't, guess what suffers? The church. The church that we put all that time and effort and energy in suffers when we don't think about what's going to happen when it's time for us to go grow some crops someplace. When it's time for us to sit down and just impart wisdom and maybe do some counseling or whatever. Paul thought about these things. He knew there was tension in the church. He's going to send this young man into it, and he's saying, you respect him. He may not have all the answers, but you help him grow because he's the future leaders. He's one of them. The next thing that you see in this passage Notice that he pours into Timothy now. He says, concerning Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. And there's a little bit of a translational problem here because the the original language doesn't translate well into English. It, It really means when Apollos has a more appropriate time. It's not that he's unwilling to come. It's that he understands now's not the right time. And so he's going to wait for the right time to come. And the picture here is is Apollos has been called into ministry. And I can tell you that every ministry, and I'm talking about every church, I'm talking about every group of churches, I'm talking about the church as a whole, and I believe that's the focus that Paul is getting to here. Every church is a church that needs each other. We need each other. Paul needed Timothy and Apollos, and we're going to find out he he needs Stephanos and Fortunatus. We are not in this alone. We are in this together. This thing called ministry is not a, a, a whole bunch of lone rangers all doing their own thing. It's a whole bunch of servants serving the most high God to one goal, and that's to see his kingdom come and his will be done. And so we need each other. Apollos was going to be used mightily of the Lord, but it wasn't quite yet his time. But Paul's setting the stage. 
See, when we work as a team, we're actually picturing figuratively the work of the Trinity. Can you imagine if God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit all decided to do their own thing? Think about it. They're all God. Don't you think they could cause a few problems? I know that's a little hard to wrap your mind around. But if there is unity in the Trinity, how much more should there be unity in we who are just simply human beings? If God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are working to one end, how much more should we be working towards one end? Have one goal. That doesn't mean that you're not useful as individuals. It's exactly the opposite. You are the most useful as individuals when you understand that every other individual is also useful. Does that make sense? When when you see other people for the value that they have, then your value is added to their value. But if your value in them is a relative value compared to their value to you, you decrease their value. You can either add believers or you can subtract them. You can either look at it and say, God, what do you want to do with us? Or you can say, God, why don't you use me? And if you can kind of use them, that's fine. No, we are in this together. Paul doesn't present himself here as the sole faithful servant. He says, no, there's some other people. And he's going to mention five others, Timothy, Apollos, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Acacius. Just in this letter, Paul lists over 25 different people in his letters that helped him along the way. That's a lot of people. And you know there was way more than that. Those are the ones that were significant that people would remember as they read these letters. We serve a God of unlimited means, But we have to be humble about claiming part of what God is doing. This ministry is not my ministry. Sometimes I'm embarrassed, not in a bad way, but I'm embarrassed because people will say, your church. And it happens fairly frequently. Well, your church, Pastor Jeff. No, it's not my church. It's his church. This church is not mine. Let me make it really clear. This is not my church. This church is God's church. He's privileged me to play a role in his church. But it's not mine. It belongs to the king. And because it belongs to the king, I have to look at everything from a kingdom perspective. What does he want to do with his church is the question. And who does he want to use in his church is the question. And how does he want to govern his church is the question. It's not I want this or I want that or these things are driven towards whatever I think is best. It's Lord, you know what's best and you have unlimited capacity to bring that to fruition. Would you please point me towards the tools that you want to use to make that happen? Because it's yours. That's what Paul's saying. Teamwork is that marvelous spiritual organism that we've been brought into as we have believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are now the church. You're the beloved. 
You're the children of God. We are the family of God collectively together. To that end, we've got to be on loving guard duty. Verse 13. Watch. Watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. And let all you do be done with love. He's saying, really, look, be watchful, be alert for spiritual enemies. Watch out for things that can tear the church apart. Watch out for things that can be put in front of somebody to make them slip. Watch out for those traps that the enemy has laid. Look out for those things. Look out for other people. Now, because we've studied this whole book, we know some of the reasons why Paul would say this. There were divisions in the church in Corinth. There was pride in the church in Corinth. There was sin by the boatload in the church in Corinth. There was disorder. There was disunity. There was erroneous theology in the church in Corinth. So he's telling them, watch out. And let me tell you why. Because we are prone when we have gone through something and gotten to the other side to forget the lessons that we learned in that crucible. All of a sudden, we no longer are looking for God to speak into our life in some area of sin where we've been delivered already. And so we kind of go around with a little bit of spiritual blinders on, going, well, I've already made it through that. I've already got the hat, the T-shirt, I have a mug, and a pin. I'm totally good to go. And so instead of being watchful, instead of being steadfast, instead of being immovable, as he said at the end of chapter 15, we kind of get spiritually lazy. And because the enemy knows that we're prone to that, guess what he does? He does the same thing through a different way. He begins to work in some area of your life where you think you've already gained victory. And all of a sudden, you're not standing true to what you have previously believed. You're not even focusing in on proper doctrine. I wrote up an article today on our response to, to what someone would normally say is, well, is, is Calvary Chapel accepting of homosexuality? And I took about four pages to say, here's what the Bible says about the sin of homosexuality. And we here still believe that it is a sin. It is inconsistent with the child of God. And no one can stick their finger in God's nose and say, sorry, God, but you're wrong. I was born this way. But at the end, I have to admit that we still want people in those areas of sin to come and know Jesus Christ. So it's not that we're not accepting of people who are sinners, because if we were to say that, none of you get to come to church. Amen? Matter of fact, I'm not showing up either. So we have to stand fast on the doctrine while doing so in love. While remembering that Christ died for the ungodly. 
He came to save sinners, of which Paul says, I am chief. So while denouncing what God denounces as a lifestyle incompatible with being a Christian, you can still say, God loves you. But God wants you to repent. God wants you to turn from that. That's where the Apostle Paul is encouraging the church at Corinth. He says, look, we've dealt with a bunch of sin problems. I don't want you to forget that just because you're forgiven of those things, that you can now turn around and go right back to them. They're still not okay with God. Just because you're the redeemed of the Lord by grace and through faith. He says, look, you're going to have to be courageous. Can I tell you, you have to be courageous to deal with sin. You're going to have it in your families. You may have to look at someone you love, one of your siblings, perhaps one of your parents, that is desperately locked in a struggle of life and death eternally, and they refuse to give up some sin, your temptation is going to be to let it go. And in doing so, you are, in essence, contributing to the fact that they don't see it for what it is. You have to be courageous. You've got to be able to look that person in the eye and say, I love you. I get it. I understand. It's a struggle for you. But I also understand God's word says very clearly that that is not to be in the life of a child of God. Now, why do I say this at this point? Because that is what Paul is focusing on. Remember what he said in chapter 6. He lists this long list of sinful behaviors. And he said, and such were some of you, but you were washed. Do you not know that those who practice such things, and this is going to sting, shall not inherit the kingdom of God? So when you talk to somebody that's struggling in sin and they are unrepentant, they are unwilling to call it what it is, you have a bold obligation before the Lord in the love of Christ to say, I love you, but you have to turn from that sin or it could cost you eternity. That is the most loving thing that you can say to them. Not bait them into believing that God somehow is okay with something he said he's not okay with. I can't even tell you how dangerous that is. That may be worse than actively encouraging sin. He's saying be bold. Be on guard. Be strong. Take that strength that you've been given by the power of the Holy Spirit And take that love that covers a multitude of transgressions and be bold enough to say, thus says the Lord. He next gives us some great examples. Stephanus and his household, verse 15. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus. That it is of the first fruits of Acacia, this area again in modern-day Turkey that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. 
They're, they're so well known by you that every one of you knows of their ministry. That you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. This is a picture of the unity that the church ought to have with itself, with each other, with those who labor. You know, sometimes as we're traveling around the world, we run into people who have different doctrinal beliefs than we do on minor issues not regarding sin and salvation. Maybe they're struggling to figure out where the rapture of the church fits. Maybe they're in that group that we call mid-tribbers or maybe post-tribbers, people who believe that, yeah, the church is going to get snatched away, but we're going to have to go through the, the wrath of God. Well, I happen to believe that Paul, writing to the church at Thessalonica, said, we've been delivered from that, for he's not appointed us unto wrath, but unto salvation. So we would disagree in our dispensation about when the church goes home in the very, very last day. So that is a disagreement, and it matters but it shouldn't divide us from sharing the gospel. So when they're sharing the gospel, I'm joining in and sharing the gospel. Saying, praise the Lord, man. We can argue about these other things when we get to heaven. I'm just going to get there before you do. (laughs) I think I am. No, I know I am. But you see, he's saying, look, here, here's this, there's this family. You all know them. I look back on our history of Calvary Chapel. We all know the family at Chuck Smith. I served with Brian and Cheryl. Connie and I both did. I know Chuck Jr. Pastor Steve and I were friends. There's a history. We know other people in ministry. And we ought to be lifting them up. Some of them have gone on. They've received their reward. And some of them are still laboring. Are you praying for people that are laboring in ministry? Or are you just complaining about the labor that they're doing? I would encourage you to pray. Pray more than you complain. You're going to find out it works a lot better. Stephanus, his household, are mentioned back in chapter 1. People whom Paul had baptized... So his household's really a a picture of the fruit of Paul's life. But they had been so transformed that they themselves went into ministry. I have people all over the world that I've had the privilege of ministering to at various points during during their Christian experience, during their walk with the Lord. I don't have any idea how many people I've had the privilege to, to pray with to receive Christ. I have no idea. They're all over the world. But I know this, at the end of the day, my prayer for them is that they're walking with the Lord wherever they are. And whatever they're doing, that it matters for the kingdom. We should be making great examples, leading people and following hard after Jesus. You see, very often we get so caught up in whether they're being exactly like us whether they talk like us, walk like us, act like us, whether they stand or don't stand, or whether they have lights or they don't have lights, or whether they got a dove or no dove, or a cross or no cross. All those things are good. Can I just tell you, all those things are good. But it is not the external trappings 
that make the church. It's the redeemed of the Lord that say, I, that make the church. And we need to love the church. Christ died for the whole of the church. He died for each one of us individually, but corporately. He died for his bride. And that is billions of people on this planet right now. I'm glad, verse 17 says, of the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Acacius. For what was lacking on your part, they supplied. Can I also tell you that so very often what we ourselves may not be able to do, someone else can and does? And in fact, they're better at it than we are. Let me give you an example. I'm not sure how many of you in this room actually write worship songs, but I'm guessing it's not that many. And yet there are all kinds of us who sit in this room who are blessed by those who've been given the gift to be able to write beautiful worship music. You you, you see, that would be a lack. If I had to write all the songs that we sing, we're going to be singing a handful of songs, amen? I'm grateful for those that have come before, those that will come after, those that are engaged right now, that add to the body of Christ, that add flavor to the things that the body of Christ actually is. That, that we're not this homogenous, you know, everything looks the same and tastes the same, smells the same, functions the same. I'm actually grateful for the diversity of the body. And so this particular household and, and these particular named people It says about them, for they refreshed my spirit and yours, and therefore acknowledge such men. Let me acknowledge Pastor Brian Broderson. Poured into Connie and I. And Cheryl. Let me acknowledge Pastor Steve. Let me acknowledge Pastor Chuck. Let me acknowledge Gail Irwin. We could sit around. We should all be ready and willing to acknowledge the people that have been used in our lives to bring us to the place that we are today. Acknowledge them. They've helped our hands and encouragement. And notice I didn't say that every person in my life that's ever poured into my life has lived a perfect life themselves. I didn't say that. And it's not true. It's not true of me. It won't be true of any of us while we're still in these mortal bodies completely. Pray that we get better each day. Amen? And for the most part, I believe that is our genuine Christian experience. We go from glory to glory. Amen? We go from being a saint to being saintly. There's a difference. Amen? Because when you got saved and you became a saint, there wasn't much saintliness in you. That's that path of sanctification that leads you to the glory of the Lord ultimately. But we should be thankful for those that have worked in our lives to get us to where we are today. Treat them with honor. You know, there's been a lot of people in my life that have put up with a lot of difficulties because of me. My wife. My amazing bride. 
I would not be where I am without her. And I mean that in a ministry sense, not just as my best friend, not just as my partner in life, not just as my absolute place of adoration. Beyond the Lord, she is the closest thing to heaven that I know. But I can tell you, I have not been perfect in every area of my response back to how she's treated me. That's where that grace comes in in each of our lives, amen? But we still honor those who have poured into us, and we love them. Verse 19, the churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord. This is an interesting word. It's only found three other times in all the New Testament. It, it means with all that's in you. It doesn't just mean like a soup. It isn't just extra noodles in it. It means with absolutely everything you are. These two people were so into what God was doing that they were like jumping up and down and cheerleading the rest of the church. You ever met those people with infectious faith? And when you get around them, you're like, man, I don't know what you ate, but give me some of that. They're just so filled with Jesus that they are contagious. That's what that word means. Aquila and Priscilla were contagious with their zeal for the things of the Lord. And everyone around them was benefited by it. They had that bumper sticker, no bad days, amen? That was them, and they meant it. There were two palm trees in the hammock everywhere they went. There was the joy of the Lord that filled them at all times. And when you met them, you were strengthened and encouraged because of the joy of the Lord in them. with the church that is in their house. You see, when you're like that, you affect the church. In this case, that church was in their house. Can you imagine if every believer had a contagious walk with the Lord so that they positively affected the rest of the church every moment of every day? Because, you know, I can tell you, I get enough bad news. All I got to do is look at my news feed on my phone. It's like, oh, man. I want to I chuck that phone. It's like, man, is there anything good happening any, anywhere in the world? And I realize that that's not an accurate representation of the whole world. But it seems like, because here's what happens, people with a negative attitude and a negative outlook and negative commentary are the first ones to speak up. You know why that is? Because people don't let that infectious joy bubble out of them. They hold it back. They think that, well, you know, people think they're weird. If you're that kind of weird, come see me. Because I want to be that kind of weird. I want people to think that maybe I'm on drugs or something. Because I've got a smile and I'm not supposed to have a smile. Maybe my, my load is lifted in light even though this world is perishing. Can I tell you something? This world is perishing. And the lust of it. But he who abides in the will of the, of the Lord will, will live forever. 
And so I should have a joy. And that joy transcends the difficulties and the problems. That's what he's saying. Be on guard in love. Look at this from the proper perspective. That's who Priscilla and Aquila were. And and they were also tent makers like Paul. So it wasn't like they came from a high place in society. They worked with their hands. Their hands were raw and rugged. They were blue-collar people. They knew how to get dirty every day, but they had a joy that transcended that dirt. They didn't let that dirt define them. They learned to live life with the joy that can only come from the Lord. Make no mistake, they were, they were persecuted. Make no mistake, there was great expense that was placed upon them because of their stance they took for the Lord. They were caught up in that silversmith's riot. There were, there were things that happened to them that happened to Paul in Ephesus. But they had opened their home and they had opened their hearts. And God used them. Tremendous examples. And Paul finally greets all the brethren. And all the brethren greet you. He's basically saying, look, we're not in this alone. You got family. I was WhatsApping with, with Tim down in Colombia today. We have family in Colombia. Santiago and Paolo, the pastor and his wife of that church, are going with us to Israel. We have family. I'm sending phone numbers and stuff to people so they can make contact with other people they don't even know are in their own country. We have family. So I'm texting back and forth and emailing back with Pastor John down in Cajamarca in Peru. We have family. There are 17 pastors that are going to a pastor's conference next week that are going very specifically because they're your family. You're sending them. You're paying for their plane tickets. You're paying for their time at the conference. You're paying for their hotels because you're their family. That's what family does. Family doesn't say, what can I get out of you? Family says, what can I give you? Your brethren greet you. And I want you to notice something, and this is still very much the practice in in almost all of the Middle East, and it doesn't matter whether it's Israeli or Arab, greet one another with a holy kiss. That wasn't, you know, some kind of bizarre, weird lip lock. They didn't walk up and kiss each other on the lips, but they did kiss one another normally beginning on the right cheek to the left cheek and sometimes back to the right cheek. It was considered honor. It was what you did when you met family. We do the same thing sometimes when we shake a hand, sometimes when we hug, and again, be respectful respectful of each other. But you know, love that can't get close, you kind of have to wonder exactly how deep that love is. Love that says, I love you, but could you please stand over there? You have to wonder exactly how deep that love is. And I'm not actually questioning anybody. 
I'm simply saying when you get to know people, the natural reaction is you get interactive with those people. When they become family, it is a holy kiss. It is a hug. It is a handshake. It is, you know, I'm really glad you're here. Not, oh, not you again. We do that sometimes, don't we? You see that person come through the door, maybe you haven't forgiven them, they haven't forgiven you, and there's something going on, like, not you again. That bums God out. God sees that, and he goes, man, my kids aren't supposed to be doing that to each other. My kids are supposed to love one another. My kids are supposed to act like family, because we are family, Amen. And I joke about this, but it's so true. You might want to start getting along with each other because you're going to spend eternity together. You you think about, well, I'll just go to the other side of heaven. Oh, that'll solve it. (laughs) I actually had somebody say that to me one time. I'm moving to the other side of heaven if they're there. (laughs) It's like, really? I can just see Jesus being okay with that. You know what he's going to do? He's going to build your houses back to back like condos. (laughs) You're going to be going, hey, could you hold it down? (laughs) Greet each other with a holy kiss. He writes this to a church that was mired in divisiveness. Personal strife and struggle and competitiveness. And he basically says, would you guys knock it off? Jesus is coming soon. Would you knock it off? Verse 21, the salutation with my own hand, Paul's. He said, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Oh, Lord, come. Maranatha. And it's an Aramaic word. It has deep and rich meaning for us Calvary folks. It was our music ministry for decades. But it really means, come Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Maranatha. He's saying, because the Lord is coming, and because people who don't know Jesus are under God's wrath. It actually is, again, a little tough to translate. The English word used there, accursed, that's what you are without Christ. You are accursed because you are going to suffer God's wrath. He's going to pour out that wrath. He doesn't want to, but because he's holy, he'll have no choice but to. So because Jesus is coming soon, Why don't we tell the world about Jesus? Why don't we tell them about the love of the Lord? Why don't we act like we know the king personally? Do you share that anticipation for the Lord's return? Because if you do, your life will bear witness to that. It will. And and this is no condemnation to anyone. We all have our moments of weakness, and I'm not excusing them. I'm simply acknowledging them. 
Paul's not saying, well, you better be perfect because the Lord's coming. He's saying because the Lord is coming and there are people who are under God's wrath, why don't we show them what it's like to be in God's family? Novel idea, amen? So if we're going to heaven, don't you think we ought to be excited about that compared to being under God's wrath and accursed? But here's how a lot of the church walks around. Really? You know, we get so caught up in what's going on in the world, we forget we're not of this world. And instead of walking around going, man, I'm going to heaven one day. Would you like to come with me? We're going, man, the earth's going to hell. Sorry for you. No, we need to show them the love of the Lord. We need to get them excited about it. Because they can have that joy too. That joy doesn't fix every problem. But that joy does transcend every problem. It is the one thing that will solve all problems ultimately. And if you don't have that love of the Lord, your biggest problem is you don't have the love of the Lord. It's not that you don't have enough money or a big enough house or you're disadvantaged in some way, shape, or form. You can have all of that and perish eternally. And so he says, let's make sure we have the main thing, the main thing here. Maranatha. The Lord Jesus is coming. Do you know him? Do you love him? Because he loves you. There's no time in that sense to waste. It's what we do for the Lord that lasts. And while that is not an excuse to not take care of the things that God's entrusted to you, it's not an excuse to not work hard. It simply means that our main focus while we're here on this earth is to make sure that other people know and love Jesus. That's our goal. And to that end, the Apostle Paul concludes and signs this letter by his own hand. And he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you and my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. He says, look, with the grace of God, you can experience the love of God you'll have that eager anticipation of the Lord's return. Those who love Christ are are looking forward to that time. We begin to look towards heaven. It's been well said that when you're young, you look towards the earth, and when you're old, you look towards heaven because you're a whole lot closer to heaven than you are to the earth. Now, maybe that is a misstatement of the real underlying truth, but it's accurate from a timeline. I am a lot closer to heaven than I was when I was born. Ask my cardiologist, I could be a lot closer than that. You know, you go in, it's like your BMI is this, your blood pressure is that, and your LDL and your HDL. It's like, man, I'm just like dead. 
then I think about it, it's like, wow, that means I'm going to heaven. So I go get another cheeseburger. <laughs> no, I'm good. I get the cheeseburger without the bacon. No, it, it's that eternal perspective of things. It's I look at heaven and I say, Lord, it's not going to be long and I'm going to be there. And here's why. Because with the Lord, a year is as a thousand days and a thousand days is as a year. He, he doesn't have any concept of time. My life, James said, is a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. In an eternal sense, we're all almost home. And so we should live that way. It's like, I'm going to heaven. Do you know Jesus? I'm going to heaven. He's the answer to your problems. I'm going to heaven. I'm excited about it. Not, oh, I go to church. Why would anyone want to go to church when you talk to them? Yeah, I go to church. I'll read my Bible. You act like it's a duty or an obligation because there's a sovereign God and he takes care of everything. You know, it's like, no. Paul says, have the joy of the Lord, the love of the Lord. Be watchful, yes. Be steadfast, yes. But at the end of the day, Greet people with a holy kiss and love on them and remind them, Maranatha, Jesus is coming soon. Amen? We just stand and we'll pray together. Father, we thank you for the hope of heaven. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here tonight as the pastors come forward and make themselves available for prayer god if there's anyone or that doesn't know you they've never committed their life to you never asked you to forgive their sin never invited you in to be savior and lord god that tonight would be that that time that day of salvation that evening of salvation where they surrender to your will and to your way to your love to your grace your mercy Lord, your tenderness. And God, for those of us who do know you, God, would we have an unmistakable joy in our life that can only be attributed to the fact that we really believe, Maranatha, that you're coming and we're going and we are excited about it. Lord, we thank you for that truth, the hope that it gives us in days of difficulty. The blessing it is when we're already feeling great, it makes the day even greater. And so, Lord, we commit our lives to you afresh and anew, and we pray, God, that you would bless us. Lord, greet us, each one of us, with that kiss from heaven, and when we receive that blessing from you, would we be quick to share it with the world that's hurting? Thank you for loving us, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.